Good, good morning. Great to see you in the house today. I would love to just take a very unscientific poll for a second. How many of us woke up Thursday morning this week and our phones did not work? Let me see a show of hands. Was that the weirdest just sensation and feeling in the world? I, I couldn't. Now, let me tell you this. Before I tell you what I'm about to say, I am not a conspiracy guy. I don't own a single foil hat. I, I, don't, I don't go down that road. I'm not, I'm not one of those guys. But did anybody else kind of think to yourself, well, maybe Russia, you know, did anybody else think that? They, okay, thank you. That doesn't mean that I'm not crazy just because you agree with me. That just means we're crazy together, maybe. Russia, China. But then I thought, no, 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 no. I think I, I, think I know. AT&T service failed. The Cowboys play at AT&T Stadium. May, I'm just saying, coincidence? You be the judge. But it was. It was a really, really weird moment of a strange sensation. I, I remember having this incredible bag of mixed emotions. There was part of me that was like, my phone doesn't work. This is awesome. I can get done so much more stuff today. I don't have to mess, don't have to answer the phone. This is going to be great. But then there was another part of me at the same time that was kind of like, my phone doesn't work. What if I need an ambulance? What if I need lunch? Does the world work if your phone doesn't work? I mean, what happens? We, we don't even know what that feels like anymore. How many of you have ever had this sensation when you're walking out the door to start your day and you realize you left your phone inside? You don't even have it on your person for like five minutes. So you're like, oh my gosh, I'm naked. I gotta go get my phone. Anybody ever had that feeling? Like you just, you, that, the phone is an amazing sense of comfort just, just to have it. Some of us are kind of addicted to those microdoses of dopamine distractions throughout the day. Bing! I matter. And, and so we have that all day long. So when they go down, there's this incredible kind of unsettling, disconcerting feeling that happens. I, I don't think I'm alone in having experienced that this week. But it reminds me that in all of human history, I mean going way back even before cell phones, believe it or not, there was a time before cell phones, there has only ever been one tool that always works when it comes to comfort. There's only one Thing that you can always rely on, no matter what, for real, soul-deep comfort. The cross of Jesus Christ is the most powerful source of comfort that the world has ever or will ever know. There's not a single thing in this world that can provide the comfort that the cross of Jesus Christ offers. You know, as of this morning, we are five weeks away from Easter. Easter where we will band together with Christians around the globe to commemorate, to celebrate Jesus's 
redeeming, restoring, saving work on the cross and through the resurrection. And so I'm going to begin a teaching series today called Before the Cross, before we get there. And over the next few weeks, we're going to do a deep dive into a passage of Scripture where God saw fit to record for us a prayer of Jesus's. It's referred to commonly as Jesus's high priestly prayer. This is the prayer that he prayed for his followers and those who would follow his followers like you and me. And he is praying for them immediately before he is betrayed, tried, crucified, executed, and resurrected from the dead. But in this high priestly prayer, we find so much about the heart, about the motivation, the purpose of Jesus's earthly life. We, we finished a series recently called Intro to Jesus, where we looked at the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. But here, as we prepare ourselves for Easter, we're going we're gonna to dig down deep into this high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's recorded in John chapter 17, but I want to kind of set the stage for what happens right before John 17, because in John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is teaching. He's educating his closest followers on what they can expect over the next few days. He knows as he approaches the cross, he, he knows what is in store for him, but he also knows that they don't know. And so he is beginning to share with them what's going to happen. This is where he is preparing them spiritually. He's preparing them emotionally. He's preparing them psychologically for this traumatic event that they're about to experience. And I love the way he starts this. In John chapter 14, verse 1, this is where he begins this preparation for the disciples. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Now, I think it's worth us taking just a quick second here to kind of pause and reflect on the fact that Jesus is approaching one of the most painful deaths the world has ever known. The Roman Empire perfected crucifixion as a means of capital punishment. And they always, they always carried it out in full view of the public because they wanted the populace to understand what happens when you cross Rome. Don't be that guy. And so crucifixion was an excruciating way to die. As a matter of fact, the word excruciating comes from the same word that we get crucifixion, the cross. It's excruciating. It is literally death by suffocation. You would, you would be hanged on a cross and your body would slowly lose the ability to lift itself up and take another breath. And so after a while, the effects of gravity began to just weigh on you and you couldn't take another breath and you died by suffocation, slowly and painfully and publicly. That's what Jesus was approaching. But as he's approaching that, he's concerned about his people. He says, I don't want your hearts to be troubled. I gotta tell you, if I were in Jesus's sandals, my heart would be troubled. I would be like, yeah, good luck with y'all, but I'm worried. But Jesus here is praying for his disciples. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. And then the very last thing he says in John chapter 16 before launching into this high priestly prayer, 
He says, I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You're going to have problems in this world, Jesus said. This is not a get out of jail free card. This is not a happy, healthy, wealthy life, no matter what. This is, the reality is you will face troubles. But, he said, take heart. Take heart. Be encouraged. Because he says, I have overcome the world. Now, what's interesting to me about this is, he says, take heart because I have overcome the world days in advance of the resurrection. He hasn't yet been raised from the dead. But to him, it's already happened because he is so singularly focused on fulfilling the will of the Father. He is so singularly focused on doing what God has called him to do. Remember what we said in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, this is the moment for which Jesus came. This is the moment that God has been moving all of human history to since all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when sin first entered the picture and God began working his plan of redemption and salvation. When God told Abraham that he would make of him and Sarah a great nation and bless the entire world through them, he was thinking of this moment. When God gave Moses the law and said, Israel, this is how you live in covenant relationship with me, this is the moment he was thinking of. When he promised David, there will always be one of your descendants on the throne of Israel and Israel will last eternally, this is the moment he was thinking of. It is staggering to see the sweep of God's work, the, the scope of how long it took to bring the world to this moment. John chapter 17, verses one through five. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to read. We're just gonna read five verses today. But I wanna share this with you because I think within this prayer is so much comfort, even though Christ is approaching this incredibly painful death. John 17, verse one. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. So there's this, this high priestly prayer, but within it, we, we learn so much about the heart of Christ and the comfort of his people. It's very, very important as we kind of kick this series off, and particularly we talk about the comfort offered here, that we understand I'm not talking about complacency. I'm not talking about being able to kind of sit back and coast and rest on our laurels. We're talking about 
the comfort that Christ offers at a soul deep level, the comfort that comes only in his presence, the peace that passes all understanding that allows us to rest in the presence of God, no matter what is going on around us, no matter how long our phone service may be out, the peace and the comfort of God. That's what Jesus is offering here. This is the comfort of the cross. And here is one of the great ironies of the cross. The cross, which was this this symbol of brutality and violence, in the power of Jesus' grace and truth, the cross flips that power. And the cross takes the, the dynamics of our dysfunction, the consequences of our sin, and flips that into comfort, into peace, into the reality that what Jesus accomplished there is there to comfort anyone and everyone who would follow him. This violence begets comfort in God's economy. It is a staggering, staggering reality. Turn to your name and tell him, that ought to knock you out. That was okay. (laughs) But the comfort of the cross. The first thing you see is there that we can take comfort in Christ's glorifying the Father. Take comfort in Christ's glorifying the Father. Here's why. Because Jesus is stepping into the fulfillment, the, the ultimate culmination of God's plan of salvation. Going all the way back, coming to this exact moment, Jesus says, this is the purpose for which I came. He says, the hour has now come. And when we understand that following Christ means we participate with him in that, then we understand we're a part of something much bigger than ourselves. You know, I, I don't know where each and every one of you is today. I, I, there's no way I could know your story. I, there's no way I could know exactly what challenges, what hurts, what pains you may be carrying today. But I do know this. When you understand that in God's economy, everything is taken care of through the cross, then there is a comfort that comes with that. Jesus took comfort in the fact that he was fulfilling God's will for his life. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, submitted himself to the will of the Father? Remember, all authority has been given to Jesus. He is Lord, period, hard stop. And yet, He said over and over again throughout his earthly ministry that his food, his spiritual soul sustenance was to do the will of his father, was to participate in the plan of salvation, of redemption, of restoration that God has always been about. And so there's this sense of comfort that says, you know what, no matter what's going on around me, no matter what's happening, God still's got it. God still's got it. Everybody turn to your neighbor and tell him, no matter what. 
That, now, that was great. But that's not just a Sunday morning pep talk. That is truth. That is reality, period. God's got this. And there is so much comfort in the fact that Jesus is glorifying the Father so he can give glory back to you. Did you know that that's why you were created? You were created, I was created to glorify God. When you do that, when I do that, there is an ease, there is a peace, there is, in fact, a comfort that nothing else in the world can even touch. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Father, give the Son glory that he may give it back to you. Anytime you do something good, anytime you do something restorative, anytime you do something that serves the purposes of God in this world, then you are living in, you are walking in that comfort. That's why when you get like sideways, when you get a little cross, when you get a little, it just, just life's not quite as good, is it? Do we have anybody in the room who has trouble with patience while driving? Can I just see a show? My hand is in the air. This is one of the ways that I measure my, I take my spiritual temperature. If somebody can cut me off in traffic and I smile and say, Lord bless you, then I know I'm, I'm having a pretty good day. On the other hand, if someone cuts me off in traffic and I do not smile and I do not say, Lord bless you, I know I've got some work to do. But when I do smile and say, Lord bless you, and, that, and that's not the same thing as, oh, bless your heart, fool. That's not, no. No, that's not the same thing. That, that's, just, that's just one example. There is so much comfort in glorifying God, in reflecting back on him, his purposes, the reason for which he created you. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes is essentially a PhD dissertation on purpose and meaning in life. It's, it's, a, it's a philosophy book. It's written by King Solomon, the son of David, and Solomon embarked on a purpose journey. He very deliberately, under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God, set out to find the meaning of life. And he tried a lot of different things. He tried knowledge. He tried wisdom, which is different from knowledge, obviously. He tried pleasure. The Bible says that Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines. That doesn't strike me as wise, but that's a whole other sermon series. But in this spirit-led experiment, Solomon found that the meaning of life could not be found in life. The meaning of life comes from God and God only. And at the very end of Ecclesiastes, he says, 
Now, all has been seen and all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the duty of humanity. To fear God. To fear God means that we reverence him. We fear alienating him with sin. And we glorify him in everything that we do. That's the meaning of life. That's how you find purpose in life. That's what Jesus was alluding to here. He said, Father, give the Son glory that he may give glory back to you. Number two, we take comfort in Christ's power. Take comfort in Christ's power. What did he say? For you have given him authority over everyone. Now, for some of us, the authority thing is kind of, is kind of touchy. Actually, that's not entirely accurate. The authority thing is touchy for all of us. We all, we all like to call our own shots. If you like to call your own shots, please raise your hand. If your hand's not in the air, you are a liar. We all do. But when you understand that God is love, that it's, it's not just something he does, it is who he is, that God is good, then you understand that you have nothing to fear in the authority of God. There's nothing to be afraid of. His authority is loving. His authority is good. And the fact that he has all authority and has given it to the son, Jesus, is something to, to celebrate, to take great comfort in. Again, to understand, no matter what happens in my life, there is nothing. Say nothing. nothing. Say nothing. 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 nothing that happens in your life or in my life that is beyond the scope and the reach of Jesus' power. Nothing. Nothing good, nothing bad, nothing indifferent. Unfortunately and fortunately, I learned this at a young age. I remember when my parents got divorced. I remember thinking, this is not God's will for our family. I don't think that it was God's will that my mom and dad get married, have three really special boys, live together for 18 years, and then get divorced. That's not God's perfect will. But I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that even taking something that was outside of his perfect will for our family, by his power and authority, God used that in my life, used that in the life of my brothers, in my mom's life, in our life as a family to teach us things, to show us things, to provide for us in ways that we never could have seen otherwise. You see, I, I learned long before I knew Romans 8, 28. I learned that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I didn't know that verse, but I knew the principle. I saw the dynamic played out. And he's too good He's too good to waste even something that happens 
outside of his perfect will. His power is so great that he can take something that even he didn't want to happen and use it for his purposes and our good. So we take great comfort in the power of Christ. Number three, we take comfort in Christ's salvation. We take comfort in Christ's salvation. He said, this is the way to have eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The word that the apostle John uses under the direction of the Holy Spirit here, to know you, is the most, the most profound sense of intimacy that anybody can ever imagine, to know God. It's not knowing about God. It's knowing God. It's knowing Jesus. It's relationship. It's not just going to church. It's not just being religious. It's not even, how about this one? Have you ever heard this? I'm, I'm a good person. No, you're not. You're not. I'm not a good person. In God's economy, God's definition of good is moral perfection. Turn to your neighbor with a smile on your face. Tell him, you're not a good person. <laughs> Do you understand how much freedom there is in that? Liberation? If you think you're going to get to heaven because you're a good person, you are kidding yourself. The Bible says there is no one good, not even one. So we need this salvation, this forgiveness, this grace, this truth. But man, once you have it, once you, once you receive that salvation, once you've admitted that there's nothing good in you, that you need forgiveness, you just, you just roll around in that freedom. It's not up to me. Grace means it is undeserved. It is unearnable. I take great comfort in the fact that I need a savior. And Jesus has offered himself as that savior. He's offered me, he's offered you that salvation. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should never perish but would have eternal life. To know him, not just to know about him, but to know him. To know him, we take comfort in Christ's salvation. And then number four, I take comfort in Christ's completed work. This is so good. He says, I brought you glory by completing the work you gave me to do. You don't have to play along, but I just, I think this is interesting. How many of us are not great at follow through? Anybody, anybody good at starting stuff? I, I man, it's kind of like, it's like a golf swing. It's like, and he just stops right there. But the real power in a golf swing whoosh, is in the follow-through. That's where you let the club do the work. Jesus followed through. He completed the work that the Father had for him. When Jesus rose from the dead, all of a sudden the cross made sense. You, all of a sudden you understood, oh, so he went to the cross and became my sin. He paid the penalty for my sin. He died. If that was the end of the story, man, that, that's, that's common. That's, 
That, that's a common bummer. But when he rose from the dead, he completed the work that he started on the cross. Because on the cross, he became my sin. He became your sin. And he died. Make no mistake about it. This is not a, this is not a spiritual allegory. It's not a myth. He died. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he completed the work that the Father had for him. And so when I realized that Jesus rose from the dead, I take great comfort in that. If Jesus rose from the dead, and he did, tell me what part of your life is beyond his power. What, what, what is it that, that you're dealing with or facing or struggling with or fighting that he can't just own? This is the one who rose from the dead. This is the one who defeated death and subdued sin for eternity. When you understand that he completed the work, whew, the comfort that that brings kind of puts everything else into perspective and lets me kind of Take a deep breath. There's an old, old hymn, and it's beautifully, beautifully powerful. When I survey the wondrous cross, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. That's my prayer for us over the next few weeks, that we would survey the wondrous cross, that we would soak in the comfort, the peace of the cross of Christ, that we would lean into what he did for us, that we would use that to glorify him in everything that we do when we walk out of here, that we would use that to be reminded of his power, to live in that power, to live in that comfort and that peace that passes all understanding. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And in this moment, just to put it to you very, very, very directly. And I'm going to ask for nobody to be moving around or creating any distraction at all. Because in this moment, I just have to ask you, have you? Have you? chosen to trust Christ? Have you chosen to not let your heart be troubled and to trust the one who has overcome the world? Not just to know about him, but to know him. If you'd like to begin that today, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. to pray a prayer of beginning, a prayer of commitment. Just right where you are, silently, 
silently talk to God from your heart to his and just say something like this in your own words. Jesus, I need you. I need you as my forgiver, as my Lord, the director of my life, and as my Savior. Lord, I confess my sin to you. I'm not holding anything back. I'm not trying to hide anything. You know it all anyway. And I confess this sin to you in order to claim, in order to receive your forgiveness, your grace and your truth. And I will follow you from this moment forward. In exchange for your life, I give you my life. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. I wanna ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for another moment. But it's a sacred moment as God's moving in people's lives. And if that was your prayer, then as a church, we would love to, to help with the moments that follow. When we dismiss in just a moment out in the lobby, out to your right from where you're sitting right now, there's a, a place there called the welcome area. If you would just go there, we have a gift for you. Just tell somebody, hey, today was my day. We'd love to give you a Bible, a, a reading plan just to help you begin this new relationship with God. Because this is just the start for you. And then second, if you would, just as our heads are bowed for another moment, if that was your prayer, would you raise your hand? If you just prayed to commit your life to Christ, just raise your hand and hold it up high in the air for a second as a statement spiritually of the commitment, a statement physically of the commitment spiritually that you just made. And know that we celebrate that with you. For us as a church family, there's nothing more important than that moment in your life and others like it. And so we have a family tradition around here. As you put your hands down, we're gonna put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.